Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What makes a food distinctly American? On this week's show, we're exploring that idea from all angles. First, we hear from native son Burke Bischoff, whose book, Po' Boy, tells people all about this classic New Orleans sandwich. It's delicious in endless varieties, the real secret of the dish, and what it has to do with the 1929 streetcar strike. Next, anthropologist Ty Matawski makes his argument that the ubiquitous roadside diner, Waffle House, serves as a microcosm of Southern culture. Finally, Author Ryan Fertel addresses the state of whole hog barbecue across the South, a dying art crafted by a very special breed. So grab your napkin, because we're serving a heaping helping of Americana in decidedly Southern-sized portions on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Burke Bischoff, and I am the author of Po' Boy, which is part of the LSU Press Louisiana True book series. Some people call it a poor boy, some a po' boy. No matter how you say it, this sandwich is one of those bits of New Orleans magic that takes many forms. Whether it's soft and crispy French bread is stuffed with mounds of hot roast beef or chock full of fried shrimp, in the Crescent City, the poor boy is often the cure for what ails you. Thanks in no small part to historians like our friend, the late Michael Mizell Nelson, we know this culinary tradition began in 1929. That was the year a local grocery store offered free sandwiches made with French bread to striking streetcar workers. What started as a necessity to keep those poor boys alive became a hit, and locals have been devouring them ever since. There is no limit to which filling can round out a poor boy, but the base is always the same, New Orleans-style French bread. Unlike a traditional baguette, poor boy bread has blunted ends. It's also lighter inside with a crispy crust. As part of the Louisiana True series from LSU Press, local author Burke Bischoff wrote a book entitled Po' Boy. In five concise chapters, Burke presents the iconic sandwich's history, ingredients, and that most vital element, the poor boy bread. 
I'm under the belief that the bread is more important than the fillings. Because without the bread, the po' boy or poor boy would completely lose its identity. You can't have a po' boy sandwich with any other kind of bread. It just won't happen. If it's too soft, if it's heavy like a white bread or a sourdough bread, it's just not going to be the same. And what you are eating is not a po' boy. It's a precious part of our culture. And in writing Po' Boy, um, I'm so grateful that you devoted the space and the time to really demystifying and confirming Michael Mazel Nelson's origin story because he really did set it straight once and for all, didn't he? He really did, and his research was paramount to um, the information I was able to find for the book, and we really lost a really important historian uh, in New Orleans. He's second to none. So tell us what you believe the set-in-stone correct historical origin story really is. It is all has to do with the two brothers, Benny and Clovis Martin, who were originally from Raceland, Louisiana. They came to New Orleans and started off working as streetcar workers. And that makes a lot more sense to why they would get involved with what happened next in 1929 with the streetcar strike that happened in the city. And the workers who um, were looking for better pay, they weren't getting that. So when they found themselves out of work, the Martin brothers, who had at this time set up a shop in the French market, and they put out a telegram or notice in the local news saying, hey, we feel for you guys. We want to support you. Come to our shop, um, and we'll give you a meal for free. As long as those poor boys remain on strike, they'll always get a free meal at Martin's Grocer. Isn't that what it says? Yes. And how fantastic that you got to actually see a copy of that notice. I didn't know that Sandy Wan of Leidenheimer's had one framed on his desk. He did, and there has been uh, uh, copies of it floating around online. And it, it's so interesting to find a old version of uh, messages like that, just to, goes to show you how far back this uh, history of this humble-looking sandwich really is. Well, we have already established that without poor boy bread, you don't have a poor boy. And it personally concerns me that when it comes to poor boy bread, we are now down to just basically two baking operations, the gigantic Leidenheimer operation, as well as the originator, the very first, John Genduces, the one who blunted those ends and decided how long that sandwich would be to have to feed a hungry family. What are your thoughts on today's status of French bread? 
I, I do admire that some of the surrounding bakeries outside of New Orleans are kind of keep, in a way, keeping a French bread tradition alive. Um, but I do think it is paramount that Gendusa's and Leinheimer's uh, continues the, the way they have been for the next hundred years. Um, they are the last two of the old line traditional French bread bakeries. And as previously mentioned, the po'boy would lose its entire identity without the specific bread. Um, so I really do think that them continuing the great work that they've been doing and uh, preserving the formula that has been working for them for numbers upon numbers of years is very important. And I think there's a lot of local support to keep them going. Interestingly enough, interesting enough so that it deserved its own chapter in your book, Po Boy, um, the Bon Mi, the Vietnamese poor boy, and that bread that those Vietnamese folks, that our Vietnamese immigrants came here knowing how to bake from the time of their French occupation. Tell me about the inroads the Bon Mi is making and where you see that bread fitting in. It is interesting how this group of new Americans that arrived in the city, even for really such a short amount of time, I mean, just the 1970s has not been a long time for them to be here. But with how uh, they've been accepted now and how widespread their cuisine is, I really think that banh mi's are a good fit into the uh, extended cultural zeitgeist that is New Orleans. In fact, um, a lot of Vietnamese restaurants that I visited in the city, they will specify underneath maybe where they list banh mi's, they call it Vietnamese po'boys. And when I talked to uh, Lynn Garza, the president of Dong Phong Bakery, she did explain to me that the banh mi bread is not exactly the same as traditional New Orleans French bread. But she has noticed that that there is a big love uh, for what they do and for Vietnamese cuisine in general in the city. Did she explain to you how it differed? She said that the crust is about the same, the flake, the kind of harder flaky crust, but the inside is a little bit, a tiny bit denser to where it has a bit more of a white bread consistency, not as light and fluffy as New Orleans French bread. But just from the sheer amount of uh, instances where banh mi's can be found in the city, I feel like they've made themselves a good home here. They certainly have. They're a welcome addition, I believe. And when in the book you cover favorite spots for a poor boy, and of course, you know, goodness, over 100 years old, both of them, Parkway Bakery and Domelisi's, They feature into the story, but also you write about newcomer Eric Bauckham of Killer Poor Boys. It was fascinating to me to learn that he actually offers two different kinds of poor boy bread at his shop. Explain that to me. When I talked to him um, for the book, he explained that he wanted to 
use what he believed would be the correct bread for the different sandwiches that he wanted to create at Killer Po' Boys. Um, in fact, he told me he would like to have every single different sandwich have its own unique French bread, but he said that's not finance, financially no, feasible to do. That's pretty <laughs> aspirational, I have to say. But he does a very great job to demonstrate how adaptive the po'boy sandwich can be. Um, if the mindset of a po'boy can be anything as long as you have the correct New Orleans French bread with it, then your imagination and your creativity can go kind of wild with it. Because that's a, a thing I really like about the sandwich. No matter what it is filled with, if you have the right bread, it's a po'boy. That's the truth. So here's the most difficult question of all. What's your favorite kind of poor boy? <laughs> that is very hard to answer because they're all honestly good. <laughs> but I, the one that I find myself going towards time and time again is the hot sausage po' boy. No matter where I get it from, I absolutely love it. I just love that little bit of heat in every bite that I get. And on the flip side with banh mi's, I absolutely love uh, the char-grilled pork banh mi's. I don't know what exactly they do to that pork, but every time I've had it, it's been the best thing I've ever had in a sandwich. What is the weirdest or the most unusual poor boy that you can think of, you came across? Hmm, that is a good question. There have been a few that I have come across that are definitely uh, taking the creativity up a notch. At Killer Po' Boys, I actually uh, tried their Thai barbecue tofu po' boy, and that was a definitely interesting uh, flavor profile with the specific sauce that he used, plus the basil leaves and peanuts in there as well. Mm. It was very good, and I think that kind of opens up a new market of specifically vegetarian po' boys that I don't think a lot of places have maybe even tried to explore. Um, there was another restaurant, Mahoney's, on Magazine Street, where I recently tried their chicken liver and slaw po' boy. And they actually won uh, one of the Oak Street Po' Boy Festivals with that Po' Boy. And it was very large, um, but very, uh, very good. Oh, that's a delicious one. I've had that. And, of course, I don't think it's on the menu at Domelisi's. But, you know, all those old uptown New Orleanians, a whole bunch of them, their favorite Poor Boy is the fried shrimp Poor Boy, with roast beef gravy. And Domelisi's is over 100 years old, so this isn't a new thought, but it is that is a big um, bit of an avant-garde sort of surf and turf, huh? Yes, it really is. I mean, you can't go wrong with either type of po' boy. And just the simple idea of, hey, let's combine these two together and see what it creates. And it's absolutely fantastic. Well, I look forward to having another delicious poor boy with you sometime soon, Burke. So thanks for coming to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. 
And thank you so much for having me, Poppy. It was fun and hope to do it again soon. That was Burke Bischoff, author of Poe Boy, from the LSU Press Louisiana True Book Series. The title of Burke Bischoff's book, Poe Boy, uses an apostrophe between Poe and boy. Is this the correct way to spell it? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia's latest innovation makes life easy for today's smaller households. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. The title of Burke Bischoff's book, Poe Boy, uses an apostrophe between Poe and boy. Is that the correct way to spell it? Well, that's the correct spelling according to Wikipedia and the New York Times. Locally, Places like Domelisi spells it with a dash between the po and boy, as does the Times-Picayune. Killer Po Boys and Parkway Bakery both spell it with no punctuation at all, just as one single word. So, which is correct? The answer is, they're all wrong. It's two words. Poor boy First word, P-O-O-R. Second word, B-O-Y. Referring to those poor boys, the striking streetcar drivers that the sandwich was invented for. Forgive me for being such a stickler, but I think it's important for people to know that down here in Louisiana, we can spell and we can enunciate. Poor boy, period. 
no matter how you spell it or say it, a poor boy always makes for some good Louisiana Eats. Take any road trip throughout the South and you'll be greeted all along the way by those familiar yellow and black signs. Wherever you are, a Waffle House is open and standing ready to feed you. Known for its breakfast offerings and 24-hour-a-day service, Waffle House was founded in 1955 when food service veteran Joe Rogers and real estate developer Tom Fortner opened their very first restaurant in Avondale Estates, a suburb of Atlanta. Since then, the southern chain has grown to include nearly 2,000 restaurants in 25 states. In fact, Waffle House has become such a ubiquitous part of the southern landscape that it can be seen as a microcosm of the culture itself. At least that's what anthropologist Ty Matawski argues in his book, Smothered and Covered, Waffle House and the Southern Imaginary. When we spoke, I began by asking Ty to define the term Southern Imaginary for us. Uh, the Southern Imaginary is like an intersubjective mythos uh, of a very overdetermined or exaggerated expression of Southern identity. Uh, so it figures in a lot into movies, television, books, and the like. Uh, it's a very aspirational way of thinking about the South. Uh, so it tends to characterize the South in either very glowing terms or very uh, dark and ominous terms. Uh, so it's it's very much kind of the way we project the South to be that may reflect reality, uh, but it may reflect more kind of our ideas of how the South is or how the South was. Uh, and we kind of embrace it in the way we go about, uh, you know, our lives here in this part of the country. Well, in glowing terms, as you mentioned, the, the Waffle House sign is always <laughs> a big glowing symbol to us all with a hungry stomach. How is the Waffle House, in essence, a microcosm of the South? So you're right that this, the glowing sign uh, that we see on the highway exit ramps is always there. It's like this wonderful beacon of welcoming uh, invitation for hungry travelers. Considering Waffle House, uh, many times it is touted as a microcosm of the South. And in exploring that, I was interested in the idea of kind of like both Waffle House and the South come with a lot of cultural baggage. And they're both viewed in kind of like a dualistic way, light and dark, good and bad. Um, so just as there's a lot of positive stories about Waffle House and there's a lot of kind of more uh, colorful, uh, you know, kind of more ominous stories about Waffle House, the same can go for the South. 
Um, so making those connections, kind of using Waffle House as a lens for understanding uh, the South of today and of more recent times. You see commercials on television for International House of Pancakes or Denny's. Uh, you will not see one for Waffle House because Waffle House uh, doesn't really do that type of marketing. So you don't see these advertisements on television. Uh, you don't hear radio spots for uh, Waffle House in that way. Uh, so it, Waffle House then, in a sense, basically cedes their messaging authority to others. Uh, so in that case, Waffle House almost acts as like a blank slate or a blank canvas for other people to project their own ideas, uh, their own beliefs, their own kind of convictions about what Waffle House is. And that's analogous in a lot of ways to the, what people do to the South. Uh, so the South can be, you know, this Magnolias and Moonglow place, or it can be this very dark, ominous kind of backwoods place. Uh, but in that way, they both kind of share this type of similarity. Why did you want to write this book? How in the world did you, an academic, decide to devote a piece of your life to the Waffle House? Um, so most of my previous work looks at fast food globalization, particularly in the Philippines. And I've also done work on natural disasters in the Philippines. Um, so as I was thinking about what is known as the Waffle House Index, uh, so this is an informal metric that the Federal Emergency Management Agency uses to uh, measure storm or event severity uh, by determining like if a Waffle House closes, that means it's a very serious event that's going on, whether it's natural or man-made. Um, so in considering that both Waffle House is a casual uh, restaurant brand and it also overlaps with disasters, that got me thinking about hmm, it would be interesting to pursue Waffle House as a topic. Uh, so as I started kind of pulling on this thread, I realized that nobody has really ever approached Waffle House in a kind of a book-length narrative format as a cultural symbol. I'd like to know about your personal journey with writing this book. What did the Waffle House represent to you at the start, and how did you view it at the finish? Okay. Uh, well, you know, like many people in this part of the country, I, you know, had seen the Waffle House sign. I hadn't really visited the location much. To me, it was kind of, I kind of bought into the idea that it was kind of, you know, it could be like a internet meme or kind of a comedic punchline that I knew that kind of crazy stuff went on there after hours. And so, that was kind of how I approached it. You know, I thought, oh, that's kind of a fun place. It would be fun to go there, you know, during the graveyard shift just to see if, if it really lives up to its reputation. Uh, by the time I finished this book, you know, I really had a deeper appreciation for kind of the significance, not only of the people that work there, but the people who visit there, you know, the diners. I, I had a, a, a newfound appreciation for the, the Waffle House as a company, the fact that the, you know, upper managements do not take holidays off. They are working just like their rank and file employees are working on holidays. Um, so I had a newfound appreciation uh, for the brand. 
In fact, uh, as I was writing this book, one of the things that myself, my wife, and my kids have begun to do is every Christmas morning after we open presents, we go to the local Waffle House and have breakfast together. Uh, it's kind of become a tradition in our family. And I don't think that would have happened had I not, you know, decided to pursue this as a book. From the beginning, Waffle House was designed to be more than just a diner. When co-founder Joe Roger published his memoir in 2000, he titled it, Who's Looking Out for the Poor Old Cash Customer? According to Ty, Waffle House was designed to do just that. Okay, so that was kind of like the overriding ethos of Waffle House when it first began. What he was suggesting is Waffle House should be a place of refuge for everyday folk who, you know, may not be having the best day, uh, may not be having an easy time in their life, but if once they enter the doors of Waffle House, they'll be treated, you know, with respect, with dignity, uh, with smiling service. Uh, so that was kind of what they wanted to instill in their employees is to treat their customers, you know, no matter what their stature was in everyday life as, you know, welcome guests within the confines of Waffle House. Well, tell me some of your favorite stories from the brand's bizarro side, as you say in the book. Uh, well, one that comes to mind is the story of um, Alex Bowen. Uh, so this goes back to December of 2017. He got a lot of internet notoriety for the fact that he visited his local Waffle House in uh, South Carolina, uh, walked onto the premises and found himself pretty much alone. There was uh, only one Waffle House employee working and this gentleman was like a, asleep in a booth. Uh, so Alex kind of took it upon himself to go back behind the counter and fix himself his own meal. Uh, so he documented this entire episode uh, and put it up on Facebook and got a lot of positive response. Being a good citizen, he returned the next day uh, to pay for his ill-begotten grub. And, uh, you know, they kind of gave him a stern lecture uh, for, you know, uh, going behind the counter and kind of in a brilliant PR move, they even offered him a job for doing that. But that was one of the cases uh, that stands out. You also cited another case. Right. Another case that comes to mind was the guy who uh, robbed the Waffle House with a pitchfork, uh, made off with the safe, and was pursued into the parking lot by, uh, uh, you know, the angry employees. And then he sped off into the night, and I believe he, like, wrecked his truck and was apprehended by law enforcement. So, yeah, a lot of wild, crazy stories seem to uh, come into play when Waffle House is in the picture. And then there's also some inspiring views of humanity like the story about the waffle house now they weren't sleeping they were just horrifically short-staffed and somehow the customers became the staff uh yeah so there's several instances that have been documented where uh you have an overwhelmed employee working behind his or herself behind the counter trying to do multiple tasks at one time. Uh, customers notice that this 
individual is, you know, kind of in dire straits. So they begin to hop behind the counter and help out doing things like washing dishes, clearing tables, things of this nature, all to kind of lend a hand uh, to, you know, a Waffle House employee uh, dealing with the situation on their own. One thing that is certain about Waffle House is that welcoming attitude. And I love that um, that tagline, we'll see you the next time. We both have to agree, I believe, that they must be doing something right at Waffle House because they've they've been around for 65 years and are numbering close to 2,000 restaurants now. Sure. What what do you have to say about what they're doing right and um, why their place seems to be so secure in our imaginary? They give consistent, uh, reasonably priced, uh, wholesome food uh, that's available at all times. So, you know, no matter what else is going on in the world, Unless it's a major natural disaster or something to that effect, you know the Waffle House is there for you. It's the place that you can go take refuge or go for a bite to eat or, you know, meet with friends or have coffee or, you know, like in the case of my family, go on Christmas morning. It's a, you know, it's always there for us. Uh, So uh, I hope people don't take it for granted. Uh, I hope people, you know, see uh, that, you know, despite kind of its light and dark reputation, that, you know, it, it is a Southern institution in many ways, something that connects us to the past, uh, something we can share uh, with one another. Well, Ty, it was a fascinating read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And now I suppose all that's left for us to say is we'll see you next time. Great. Thank you so much, Poppy. (laughs) That was Dr. Ty Matauski, University of Central Florida anthropology professor and author of Smothered and Covered, Waffle House and the Southern Imaginary. Coming up next, we speak with author Ryan Fertell, who demystifies the role of the pitmaster in the tradition of whole hog barbecue in Tennessee and the Eastern Carolinas. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Blue Plate Mayonnaise, the beloved secret ingredient of Louisiana kitchens for over 90 years. Blue Plate's rich creamy mayo is crafted from their timeless recipe, just oil, vinegar, and only the egg yolks. Blue Plate Mayo, that's the good stuff. 
and from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more, Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on Louisiana's North Shore. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape. Just 40 minutes from New Orleans' French Quarter. My name is Ryan Fertel, and I am the author of The One True Barbecue. While writing his book, The One True Barbecue, Ryan Fertel observed the intense physical labor of whole hog pitmasters at work. Surprisingly, he was reminded of his own mother at work. You see, Ryan spent much of his childhood in the Lafayette location of his grandmother's restaurant, which was managed by his mother. Who was his grandmother? None other than Ruth Fertel, founder of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Ryan shared this memory of his mom, Rosemary Parisi, who was the first to show him the toil and beauty of a butcher's work. The saw and the meat, combined with the promise of smoke and fire, did more than excite a version of southern exoticism within me. These rituals unlocked a deeply held memory. I was instantly and quite uncomfortably put in mind of my mother, who, in one of my earliest recollections, I can see slashing through a short loin with an electric bandsaw. Her thriving steakhouse, and this was the days before prepackaged cryovac steaks, cut the following day's quota of New York strips, fillets, and ribeyes. When any given employee became a no-show, my mom took up his position, even if that meant being the butcher. It was brutal, violent work, not maternal in the least and the next 15 minutes went by in the blur and the whine of the saw blade. By the time Gabriel had stopped reveling in the rendering of pig flesh, 12 disembodied trotters stood piled in the truck's bed. I was sickened. I was thrilled. I was hungry. Through stories told in artful prose, Ryan's book takes us through the best whole hog barbecue joints in Tennessee and the eastern Carolinas pillars of a sustained tradition whose numbers are dwindling. We sat down with Ryan to discuss his exhaustive research on the book, a process that led him to some of the smokiest storied barbecue shacks in America. Ryan began by describing Ricky Parker, one of his all-time whole hog heroes. Ricky Ricky was a man, a pitmaster, a barbecue cook that I met in the summer of 2008. I was working for the Southern Foodways Alliance. They had sent me to West Tennessee to to document barbecue culture. And uh, there in Memphis, I uh, ate barbecue almost every day that summer. I ate barbecue sometimes five times a day. I didn't 
necessarily enjoy myself or, or fall in love with barbecue as a thing. I didn't love barbecue too much before that. But in Lexington, Tennessee, where Ricky Parker's Scott's Barbecue Restaurant was, I found something completely different, completely new. Um, Ricky was, he was cooking whole hogs. So these are uh, entire pigs. And Ricky, he was never content with cooking just one. He was also too busy to cook just one. He, so he would strive to cook as many as possible. He would cook a dozen um, sometimes uh, over a weekend night. Um, his, his great goal in life, he told me over and over, I'd visit him every year after 2008, was to cook 100 whole hogs over an Independence Day weekend. And uh, so I, after that first visit, fell in love with his food, but also kind of fell for the guy. He was, he was a bit of a character. Um, I never knew if uh, he would be open. He was uh, in and out of um, certain dependency issues. He liked to say that he was m married to his restaurant more than he was to his wives. He thought that he was the last of, of the great whole hog pitmasters. In a sense, he, he was right. Uh, he grew up in, in that part of Tennessee, West Tennessee, just about an hour and a half, two hours east of Memphis. Uh, they didn't cook shoulders. They didn't cook ribs. They cooked entire pigs. Um, but in the 70s and the 80s, these places start to disappear. Why do you think, because obviously you bought into this, why is whole hog barbecue the one true barbecue? Yeah, so... The title of, of the book is The One True Barbecue. A better title might be My One True Barbecue because Whole Hog really became uh, my thing, my passion, my obsession. Um, Ricky liked to say that uh, a whole hog contains every part of the pig, and he's right. So he, when, when you go to Scott's Barbecue today, um, it's now run by Ricky's two children. Um, you can really order any part of that animal. So you can pick, pick a little bit of shoulder, a little bit of ham, a little bit of belly meat, a little bit of tenderloin, and you could have this mixed and matched. Um, you could have a little bit chopped or sliced. Um, so it, you're, you're kind of imagining the perfect sandwich. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he's right. There's something about the sustainability of eating a whole animal. He didn't talk in those terms. Um, but there's something about being able to eat anything you want off of this carcass. Walk us through the families across Tennessee and the Carolinas who really dominate whole hog barbecue. Who are these people? Well, when we think of, of uh, family history and barbecue and whole hog barbecue especially, um, we got to talk about the Jones family in Naden. Pete Jones opened the Skylight Inn in 1947. He was a teenager. Uh, he was a teenager in an uh, agricultural town. Uh, he didn't have a lot of prospects. And so he opened what amounted to a bar room serving hamburgers and maybe the whole hog barbecue that his barbecue forefathers uh, had cooked before him. So he opens this place. You know, it, it was never really popular. Uh, it somehow remained open. Uh, it fed people very cheaply. Um, this was an agricultural town. This is where people would would go for a beer uh, and a bite of barbecue and, and, and coleslaw and, uh, and the cornbread after work. But then in 1970s, uh, National Geographic comes by. So now National Geographic sent a pair of reporters, a writer and a photographer on the road. And they are traveling around uh, eastern North Carolina. They're looking for the best barbecue. They're eating bite after bite of barbecue. They're liking what they eat, they say. Um, and then According to the Jones family, according to Pete Jones, this was the story he always told. And if you go to the Skylight Inn, it's written on the walls. This is a story they'll tell. The reporters come into the Skylight Inn and they say, sir, 
we've heard you, you have some good barbecue. And he says, I think I do have some good barbecue. Let me try. Let me let, me let you all try it. So he, he gives them uh, some, some chopped whole hog, and they taste the barbecue, and they say, this is the best barbecue we've ever had. You, sir, have built the capital of barbecue. And so after that, Pete Jones started using that phrase, capital of barbecue. He even built a replica of the U.S. Capitol Dome on top of his restaurant. And you can see it from a mile away, potentially. It glitters like silvery white in the sun. It's, it's, it's ridiculous looking, but it's beautiful. Um, and that story is, is not true, or it's only half true. The National Geographic reporters did step in to Pete Jones's barbecue, and uh, he said, boys, I have the best barbecue sandwich you've ever had in your life. I own the capital of barbecue. They took his words, put it in print, and after it was in print, then he built his dome. That's hilarious. Well, that barbecue, it's hard work, no matter which way you slice, dice it, or chop it. It is brutal work. This whole hog business is brutal, brutal work. It's not your ordinary barbecue. So you're not only cooking like Ricky Parker did from dusk to dawn, but you're working in the smoke-filled pit house. And it is smoke-filled because the the hogs require constant shoveling. So you have to shovel um, fresh hardwood coals under these pigs about every 20 minutes. This is throughout the night. A lot of times, um, these pigs explode. They're, they're constantly dripping grease on these coals that lie just a foot underneath them. Um, and if this grease catches fire, it can run kind of up, come almost gravitate, the fire gravitates, catches the hog on fire, um, and will burn the whole pit house down in a matter of minutes. Um, every single pit house I've been to has burned down. You were pretty brave because you spent a fair amount of time in there, and there was one particular passage in the book where the smoke alone was just really overwhelming and got to you. Well, I don't know if I was brave. I mean, I reporters, I, yeah, I, I'm not, I was reporting. And so a, a lot of the book is, is about um, sitting with these pitmasters throughout the night, sitting by the fire, staring into the fire, uh, encouraging them to tell me stories, any kind of stories, beyond trying to go beyond barbecue and, and the process that they do. But, you know, while sitting in these pit houses, I did have to inhale a bunch of smoke. Uh, and I would feel um, unhealthy after uh, a night in these pit houses. Um, a lot of these pit masters have worked in these places, in, um, in these smoke houses, for 30, 40, 50 years or more. Um, a lot of them also smoke tobacco. So the existences that they lead are, are uh, they're tough. They're tough guys. They kind of adhere very stubbornly to this tradition. Well, bravo to you for doing this research and bringing all these people's stories to the forefront. I can only imagine all the pitmasters, present and past, and all of the great steak folks gone on to meet their maker who are smiling at you and your beautiful book. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks so much for sharing this with us. Thank you, Poppy. This was wonderful. Ryan Fertel, author of One True Barbecue. I got a kind-hearted woman Anything that's worth for me That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. We'd like to welcome our new sponsor, Blue Plate Mayonnaise. When your poor boys, potato salads, and roumelade need that authentic New Orleans flavor, Blue Plate Mayo, that's the good stuff. And big thanks to our returning flagship sponsor, Dickie Brennan and Company. Pascal's Manali Restaurant, uptown on Napoleon Avenue, is now serving continuously Tuesday through Saturday, 11.30 a.m. till 9 p.m., where Uptown Tea is waiting for you at New Orleans' oldest stand-up oyster bar. Louisiana Eats is also made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, Producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb with writing contributions from Becky Retz and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>